Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew today. And I'm going to try my best to be a good steward of your time, but I do have something on my heart that, that's kind of just burning inside of me today. Friday night at the uh, men's Bible study, uh, we've been watching the uh, uh, last couple of months a DVD study by Pastor Mark Batterson. Uh, it's based on his book, All In. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a history buff. I like history. I particularly like American history. And I particularly like the period of the Civil War, uh, the history of it. And uh, to begin the the DVD, he he did a a basically a, a background of, of the Battle of Gettysburg. And he talked about uh, Colonel Chamberlain, who, if you remember your, your history, was the Union uh, leader there, who he was overrun. And he had 80 soldiers left against 4,000 Confederate troops. And the logical decision for the sake of his troops would have been to surrender. And most historians and analysts believe that had... He surrendered, which most leaders would have done given those circumstances, that the whole tide of the American Civil War would have shifted, and most likely the Confederates would have won the Civil War. They would have taken the Battle of Gettysburg and probably from that point would have won the Civil War. But this man who, who by the way, was just a school teacher by trade, not that there's anything wrong with being a school teacher, but he was probably the most unlikely candidate to be a military leader and in that position. But as with many during the Civil War, they were either drafted or went into to service, pressed into service from all different vocations, many of them very young, many of them totally unprepared uh, for the horrors they were about to see. But this man found himself in, backed into a corner. And, and having read his history, I remember this, and, and it was reminded the other night, he said he just didn't have retreat in him. He said if he was going to take a bullet, it would not be in his back. Uh, it was going to be with him moving forward. And so instead of sounding retreat, he sounded the word charge. And, and those 80 soldiers took over those 4,000 Confederate soldiers, and it is known as one of the greatest and unlikely military victories in American history. And when asked about his decision to charge, he just said, I just didn't have retreat in me. I just didn't have that in me. It wasn't that he sat and he strategized and he thought, well, now if I take this level and we go in here and we do that, then we'll probably win. There wasn't a question that most likely, given all natural circumstances taking place, they were going to die. But he just couldn't bring himself to surrender. He couldn't bring himself to call a retreat. It just wasn't in him. And so rather than retreat and turn his back on the enemy, he charged, even given the fact that he would probably die, and yet they won one of the greatest victories in American military history. And that just kind of stirred something up in me, unexpectedly, actually. I've been thinking about it all weekend. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, we read some words of Jesus that, quite frankly, you don't hear. I don't preach on it very much. You just don't hear it preached on very much. But these are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, speaking to his disciples. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. But beware of men, 
For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that very moment, in that hour, what you should speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to even be put to death. Notice verse 22. You will, believer, disciple, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end, he will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Notice this. If they have called the master of the house, Jesus, Beelzebub, or or they've named him as his works coming from Satan, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Jesus as he prepares to send his disciples out for ministry, he says, I want you to understand this, and no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I'm sending you out as sheep, but you're going into the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out into a difficult, hostile environment. I'm sending you out into a place where everybody's not going to understand you. Many people are going to hate you just simply because of my name's sake. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be handed over to councils. You're going to even experience division and hostility within your own house and among your own family because you are going to be taking a stand for me. He said, I want you to be aware of that. And his counsel to them was that they would be wise as serpents or crafty, or smart like serpents, yet harmless as doves. Now, I think as the church in general, we've got the harmless part down. Because when we see all kinds of things coming against our faith, and we see all kinds of immorality rising in our culture, and we see ridicule, uh, on the name of Christ and, and ridicule taking place all around us and, and we see all of the depravity and all of the destruction and all of the bondage that we see in our family and we see in our friends and we see in our co-workers and we see in our neighborhoods. When we see all of those things, we've got the harmless part down. We're, we're very careful about not trying to offend anyone. We're very careful about not trying to, to, to step over the edge and cause anyone discomfort. We're very careful about the harmless part. Now what Jesus is alluding to there and being harmless as a dove is he's simply wanting us to walk in love. Jesus says the world will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. He tells us to to not only love each other but to reach out in love even towards our enemies to bless those who persecute us and, and pray for those who spitefully use us and mistreat us. But he also said this other part that we tend to forget. While you're living in this world, be as smart, be as crafty, be as wise, be as sly as a serpent. One of the reasons that he calls us to be crafty as we live in our world, even though we walk in love towards those around us, is because we are in a battlefield whether we realize it or not. You and I are at war. 
And we didn't just go and become a people at war because of the administration that's in the White House now. We, we didn't just now enter the battlefield because of what's happening in Congress now. We didn't just now enter the battlefield because of certain laws that they're passing and certain laws that they're not passing now. Christians didn't just over the last 20 years enter into a place of war. We have been engaged in warfare whether you realize it or not, recognize it or not, get involved in it or not, ever since you came into the kingdom of God. Ever since this moment, warfare, ever since Satan tried to take Jesus out, though he fell miserably, there has been a war going on. You could say it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You could say it even goes back farther than that, predating the Garden of Eden. Satan has been at war with God, and Satan's been at war with those who name his name. And this isn't a tame war. It's not a calm war. This is a serious war, and the enemy's serious about what he's doing. The Bible says we have an adversary. His name, he names him. He's the devil. And he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the Bible tells us to be steadfast in the faith. When the Bible talks about this enemy that we have, he says we have to resist him. That, that word resist means stand up toe-to-toe, face-to-face. Don't give any ground. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that until Jesus comes back again, our role as believers is to occupy Until he comes. That word occupy is a military term. It means that the ground has already been won. We're not trying to win the ground. It's already been won. It's been gained by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a counterattack that is being waged to try to take over the ground that Jesus has won. In your life individually, in your marriage, in your family in your finances, in your health, in your workplace, in your church, in this nation, even though Jesus has won the battle and won the war, it's done. You're called to militarily stand, having on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 says, recognizing that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we do have an adversary. We do have a battle. It's against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. There's a war going on. And for the people of God, we can't afford to sit passively by and allow this war to continue while we may be harmless as doves without also being crafty as a serpent. You can't take one part of the command of Jesus without picking up the other part of the command of Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit's been burning inside of me ever since Friday is it is time for the body of Christ. Now this may sound strange because many of us are going to already did that. But it's time for us to choose a side. It's time for God's people to stand up and be counted again. And I'm not talking about, okay, I'll get involved in the next political campaign. That's fine for you to do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's time for God's people to understand the war that we're involved in. It's time for us to recognize the cost. It was vividly portrayed this morning in such beautiful testimony that even though we are blessed, we complain about where we're at, and yet all over the world today, there are people who will not eat at all. All over the world today, the beast of poverty has overtaken so many homes that they won't know what it is to have a meal. 
all over the world today, you have even Christian brothers and sisters who may be taken captive by the time the day is over and their life snuffed out simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ all over the world, particularly in the Middle East, but all over the world today. You're not facing that this afternoon, but your Christian brothers and sisters are facing it all over the world today. It's going on. All over the world, this battle's raging. But in the United States, there's a quieter battle that's raging. So quiet and so subtle that it can lull us to sleep. As our life continues to go on just as it has always been, and we continue to go through the same patterns and the same rituals and the same motions that we do day after day after day and week after week after week and moment after moment after moment, we go to church, we go out to eat, or we go home and eat, and we take a nap, and we get up, and we go back to church if we come back on Sunday night, and we, and we take a nap, and we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we come home with our family, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we come home with our family, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we come home with our family, maybe we come back to church on Wednesday night, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we go through all these same motions. And so suddenly, so gently, the enemy lulls us to sleep and he makes us think that this is what life is about. Matter of fact, some of us have swallowed the poison of what is called the American dream. Now, I love, I'm, I'm as patriotic as the next guy, believe me, I am. And I love the fact that we were founded with the notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But don't forget that your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus never said that my goal for you is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He said my goal for you is to take up your cross and follow me and die daily. Jesus said, my goal for you is to preach this gospel to the very ends of the earth so that the end can come. Jesus said, my goal for you, my dream for you is to stand up against all the principalities and powers that stand against you to wage an effective warfare and to be a good soldier of your Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says that my goal and my dream for you is to understand that no soldier who is worth his weight gets entangled with the affairs of this life. That's what God's called us to do. Jesus looked at his disciples and, and listen, I know this is like I say, we don't preach this very much. We don't talk about it very much anymore because we like to talk about all the good things. And I believe in a good God. Listen, I believe in about tonight we're going to talk about how good God is and all the glory. But if the Lord if that's what the Lord now he could change that, so I'm very careful to say it. But that's my plan is to talk about all the goodness of God and all but listen, understand something. This wonderfully awesome good God shows up up on the scene in front of fishermen, two sets of brothers, and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible says the beginning of discipleship is to lay down everything you are and everything you're comfortable with and everything you've ever been familiar with and everything you have ever known and leave it all and follow Jesus. That is how it began. Don't think that we've improved upon that. The, the bottom line is when Jesus shows up in your life, he doesn't say, hey, I want you to add me along to all the other things you're doing. He shows up and says, come on, drop everything you've got. I'm worth following. And anything less than that is less than discipleship. Anything less than that is less than following Jesus to the ends of the earth and being what he's called us to be. Anything less than that will cause us to sit in these chairs and live our life full of frustration, thinking, I thought I was following God. Why am I not happy? Why am I not at peace? Why is my family all messed up? Why is this? Why is that? Because Jesus never called you to add him to your list. Jesus called you to make him your own thing on your list. 
But we've settled for what I call American Christianity rather than the biblical authentic version of Christianity. You see, the thing is, if we lived in another country today, it would not be as comfortable, convenient, or easy for us to be a Christian. We would understand this much better if we lived in an Islamic country. If you lived in an Islamic country today, you would understand that to follow Jesus meant your very life. If you lived in a Buddhist or a Hindu country, you would understand that better than we do here. In America, we've forgotten that we're at war. As much as that's true in some sense of the word in the natural realm, there are a lot of people who want to forget that we're at war in the natural. But even more important, we've forgotten that we're still at war in the spiritual realm. And we've got an enemy who's very serious about this warfare. Let me just make something very clear. I've hit on this many times before. I'm going to hit on it again. The enemy is actively engaged in trying to take the next generation. Statistics will tell you, and you can argue against statistics if you want to, but they're still there. Statistics will tell you right now that we are less than a generation away from America being a non-Christian nation. Less than a generation away. Many people would say we're only a Christian nation by name now and not by practice. Why is that so? Because, guys, here's the fact. I hope it's not true for our kids sitting in this room today, but here's the fact. Most of our kids, when they leave our homes and they go to college, they don't come back to church. Oh, well, that's just a few, not many. Oh, no. Over 70% of them. When they leave your home and they go to college, they don't come back to church. They go into a classroom with a professor who tells them everything they learned at home and in church was all false. That it was just old-fashioned people clinging to their old ways, afraid that they would ever learn the real truth. And then they come in and they begin to ram what I call brainwashing down the minds of another generation. And not only do they try to turn them against God and the truth and the scripture, they try to turn them against their own country too. They rewrite history happening all over the world. Our history books, have if you looked at a history book from when I was a kid and you looked at an American history book today, you'd think you grew up in totally different countries. And that the historical facts were very different. And they will tell you they were very different. Why, it was a superior dominant class that was trying to enslave people that wrote these old history books. The fact is, the fact is, those history books that are being rewritten have an agenda. And they have a slant. Don't you miss it? Understand, and I say that so that you understand, there is a war taking place today. And it is for not, you see, if you're over the age of 35, you can comfortably sit back and say, well, I don't have to worry about that. But the war is not for your heart. The war is for the heart of your children and your grandchildren. You see, the enemy is very patient. He's willing to wait thinking that he can lull the grandparents and the parents to sleep. 
that he can get them caught up in the pursuit of new homes and new cars and more new materials and more new possessions and all these things while little by little by little lulling them to sleep, pulling them out of their prayer closet, pulling them away from their place of worship, taking them out of the Word of God, moving them into more and more compromise where they are accepting things and ideas that just 10 years ago they would have felt conviction from the Holy Spirit about, but by trying to accommodate the culture, they stepped away from many of the things that they held on to as standards just even five or ten years ago. Little by little, our world is being lulled to sleep. And while our generation sleeps, the enemy is active with an agenda to steal the heart of the next generation. And like King Hezekiah, when he was confronted with his sin... The prophet told him that all these destructions that are going to come upon the nation, because you have been righteous up until now, they will not come during in your lifetime, but during the lifetime of your children. And King Hezekiah, in what I think is the ultimate expression of selfishness and naivety, says, well, thank goodness, at least I'll go to death in peace. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. No, but your children will pay the consequences for it. And your grandchildren will pay the consequences for it. Now, if I were standing here today talking about a battle that was impossible to win, it was, and I know there are many in the church who have given up hope. I get it. But I haven't. If I was standing here, why? Because Jesus never did. In the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, he sent his disciples with a mission and with an assignment, and he equipped them with power. But the only way they could effectively engage the enemy is if they let go of everything else but Jesus. Jesus tells them, beware of men. Beware of the world that you're in. You're at war. There's a battle that's on. We need to think and live like we are engaged in a war for the souls and the hearts and the minds of people all around us. It could be said, and it really would be true, that the stakes of this warfare are much higher than any physical war we're involved in. Because if someone loses their life on the battlefield, as tragic as that is, if they know Jesus Christ, they have eternity in heaven. But if someone loses their life in this field of battle before coming to Jesus Christ, they'll spend all eternity in hell. And so to combat that, the enemy now has false prophets and false teachers out parading under the name of Christianity, proclaiming there is no hell anyway. So why worry about any of that? You see, we're in a war. There's a battle going on. All over the world, there's a battle that's raging. And Jesus has called us to be involved. But the enemy has his propaganda. They're out there churning out the propaganda. And if we're not careful as the church, sometimes we swallow the enemy's propaganda. A good exercise for everybody in this room today will be to go home and turn everything off. Television, computer, your iPhone, set it down, put it aside. I'm, I'm just 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Set it all aside. Everything that would distract you, set it aside. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you any area of compromise where five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, 
you were much more on fire for God than you are today. And don't move until he speaks. Now, if you walk out of that room and the Holy Spirit tells you, all's well, you're closer to me than you've ever been, then get up and rejoice. But if in that room the Holy Spirit begins to show you areas where you've compromised, areas where you've given in, areas where you've fallen prey to the enemy's propaganda, then before you turn anything else on that would distract you, I challenge you to get on your face, get on your knees, go wherever you go, and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and to bring repentance into your heart. I read on a a quote by A.W. Tozer the other day. He said, if the gospel that's being preached in your preaching or that you're hearing doesn't involve repentance, then you're not hearing the true gospel. If there is no place for you to come before God and say, here I am wrong, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit, and I need to turn by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and change in this area of your life, then you're not hearing the message that we see preached here. And the Bible says there will be all kinds of false gospels, false Christ, false teachers, false prophets, particularly in the last days, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. The Bible even says there will be doctrines of demons, teachings that come directly from the pit of hell. They're going to come out to bring deception to the people of God. This is an all-out war. The book of Ephesians goes on to say, and I quoted it a while ago, we're not battling against people in this war. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. Very literally, our battle is against the culture, not the people in it, but the ideas in it. Our battle is against the, the ideas and the compromise that's out there reaching for your heart and your soul. The distractions and the idols that are trying to steal our time away from the presence of God. I saw a picture the other day, just a picture, and it moved my heart. I can't remember exactly where it was, but they were having a season of prayer at a church. And I saw all around the open altar area of the church, people on their faces before God. And I wanted to cry. I don't know why, I just wanted to cry. Because something inside of me just sprung up, so I remember I remember, I remember what it was for the people of God to be so engaged and so moved by God that prayer was a priority, not an afterthought. I've talked to Don, and back when when mom was living, I talked to her many times about what's happened in the world of the church in America, what's the reason that it seems there's so little power, seems there's so little holiness. Seems, and they both said the same thing. Prayerlessness. We find time to do everything but pray. We find time to do everything but spend time with... Now, if you know you're in a war, if you know this is a battle for life and death, and you know that your lifeline is time in the presence of God, you're going to be there. But if you swallow the propaganda that everything's okay, and this is really not all about that, it's all about the pursuit of the dream. Come on, we need more stuff. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. We've got to go here. We gotta... The Bible says, I was going to read it, but I'll just quote it to you. Jesus said, what good does it do you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What good is it? We're in a war. 
And it's time to choose a side. Verse 18, Jesus even says, you're going to be brought before governors and kings. But he said, when you are, it's for my sake. And it's for the sake of the king. I was just reading in my morning devotional this morning. I'm reading back through Genesis again. And I'm up to the chapter where Joseph has his brothers come before him now for the second time, and he reveals himself finally to them, lets them know that he's their brother who was long lost that they thought was dead. And in a part of his revelation of who he is, he makes this unbelievable declaration because his brothers understandably are terrified. Once they realize this is Joseph, the brother that they threw in a pit and that they sold into slavery and that they hated all those years and that they spoke so abusively against and that they treated so wrongly that now this same brother is now the most second most powerful man on the face of planet earth and their life or their death is in his hands and he's standing in front of them. They were understandably terrified that he was now going to exact revenge For all that they had done. But Joseph makes this awesome statement. He said, don't be afraid. You thought you sent me here. It wasn't you. God sent me here ahead of you to preserve not just your life, but the life of this whole seed, the life of this whole race, and the life of the whole known world. You thought you were doing this. But God is the one who sovereignly took your wrong actions and turned them around to save a generation. Why could, how could he say that? Because somehow Joseph had got a hold of an understanding that we ought to get a hold of. This life is not about what happens to you and happens to me. This life is about what we do with what Jesus has put us here for. God can take whatever the devil throws at you and turn it around for rescue and deliverance and hope and peace and revival as long as you understand that this life is not about you. It's about Him and you are totally, completely devoted and committed to His purpose in your life. Joseph was. Jesus says, even when you're brought before kings and councils, don't don't even think about what you're going to say ahead of time. For at that very moment, the Holy Spirit will put into your very mouth the words that you need to say. You'll glorify me. Otherwise, what's he saying? You're there for a reason. Can I tell you something? You are where you are for a reason, whether you realize it or not. Let me just add something to it. You are where you are for a reason, whether you like it or not. You see, it's the American dream that says we got to be happy. God never said that. But brother so-and-so, I ain't talking about brother so-and-so. I'm talking about God. Well, sister so-and-so, I ain't talking about them either. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about what Jesus actually said. Matter of fact, Jesus said in this world, you're going to have some trouble, folks. You're going to have some tribulation here. But be of good cheer. Notice that he didn't say you're going to feel happy. He said you just get that way. You be of good cheer. Well, how can I be happy when I got trouble? Because Jesus said I've overcome this world. 
He did not say, I'm going to make it easy for you. He said, no matter how hard it is, understand that you follow me and there's a bigger purpose to what you're doing, so make yourself happy because you know that I've overcome whatever you're dealing with. You get happy. Just, <laughs> I know that sounds strange to say in church, but just get happy. Well, that's a lot easier said than done. Believe me, I know it. But we're in a war. Whoever said war was easy? Whoever said being engaged in the greatest war of all eternity was going to be fun? See, the American church thinks everything ought to be fun. I'm just not having any fun anymore. Well, most soldiers in war don't. I've heard a lot of things about war, but I've never heard anybody say it's fun. Now, I've heard them call it something else that I won't say from the pulpit, but they definitely don't call it fun. War's not easy. As a fellow soldier, you got the enemy waging in your family, and we act as if something's strange. No, we're at war. Don't you think of all the things that the enemy would love to do? Don't you think he'd love to devour your family? Well, that's target number one. If you're a husband or you're a wife, guess where the enemy wants to hit first? Well, he could probably do more damage to you by by touching your husband or your wife than he could by touching you yourself. It's a war. Parents? The devil could cause you more pain by messing with your kids or your grandkids than he ever could by messing with you. How many of you understand that? It's a war. So, you know, Jesus said when you go through the fire, I think it was the Apostle Peter said, when you go through the fire, don't look at it as if something strange is happening to you. This isn't strange. This is war. But why is the fire burning so hard? Not to destroy you. He says that this trying of your faith that is more precious than gold. The trial's not what's more precious than gold. Your faith is what's more precious than gold. And as you come through this trial of fire, your faith is going to shine. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And as we rise up with the shield of faith lifted that quenches every flaming arrow of the enemy and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, Knowing that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Understanding that the reason my family's having trouble is because I'm at war. And the reason my marriage is having trouble, if it is, is because I'm at war. And the reason my finances are under attack is because I'm at war. And the reason my health is under attack is because I'm at war. And the reason my church is under attack is because I'm at war. If we had start looking at life as if there's a war and there's an enemy, but we are more victorious, then we could engage the battle. And if we could engage the battle, I think we would see victories more quickly and definitely more thoroughly. But as long as we are lulled to sleep and forget that we're at war, then many times the enemy can run havoc in our lives without us ever even realizing it's the enemy that's running havoc in our lives. We forgot we were at war and we have an enemy. Now we are victorious. But we have to occupy, and we have to be engaged. 
He says you're going to be hated, verse 22, by all for my name's sake. He even says that they would call, just like they called Jesus Beelzebub, they'd call those who follow his name, and they would say, well, they're working for the enemy. I read that, and I couldn't help but think, just a little sidebar, I couldn't help but think that Islam looks at Christianity and calls us something. You know what they call us? The great Satan. America, mainly because of Christianity, they look, even though we're not, we don't act like a Christian nation, they assume that we're a Christian nation because we believe in Jesus as a whole, generally speaking. So they assume we're a Christian nation, and they call us the great Satan. Well, Jesus said they're going to call you that very name. They're going to rise up and bring persecution and hostility against you. But you don't even just have to have Islam standing against us. While our modern media, with all of its political correctness, that wants us to lay down and swallow that a lot of things that the Bible says are abominations to God are okay. Whether we're talking about the sin of homosexuality, or whether we're just talking about the sin of sexual promiscuity. Any type of sex outside the realm of marriage is a sin. Period. I don't care if you're 15 or 55. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Let me say that again so that you hear me say that from this pulpit. Clearly. Sex outside of marriage is sin all the time. Period. Exclamation point. Why do you make a point about that? Because we're at war. And if the enemy can lull you as a child of God to sleep and allow you to take a weapon and fire at you and say thank you for it, then he's already halfway there in destroying you and he has already rendered your influence ineffective. Well, everybody's doing it. That's not a good reason to do anything. Never has been, never will be. Everybody's doing a lot of things. What was the message today? Choose a side. Choose a side. And if you choose the side of the Word of God, you're going to have to take some stands that are unpopular with the world. If you choose the side of the Word of God, you're not always going to be politically correct. If you choose the side of the Word of God, now listen, hear me. I'm not saying Christians have a right to treat anybody rudely or with disrespect. That causes a bad name on the church of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons that we are so disrespected. You know somebody who's a homosexual just because you don't believe in homosexuality doesn't give you the right to treat them like a piece of garbage. They are still a human being who Jesus died for. You know somebody who is having an affair, that doesn't give you a reason to treat them like a piece of trash. They are a human being that Jesus died for. They need your love, not your pointed finger. But they do not need you to lie to them and tell them everything's okay or to do a more subtle form of disgraceful lying by not even addressing something that's destroying their life because you're too afraid of hurting their feelings. As the church of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be engaged in this warfare, there comes a point where we've got to stand up and choose a side. 
And if we really believe that people who don't know Jesus and people who practice sin in their life, even if they say they do know Jesus, are being destroyed, then how long can we say that we really love them and stand unengaged apart from their life while we watch them destroy themselves or the enemy destroy them? There comes a point where we have to choose a side and understand that this is a warfare that we're involved in. But here's the good news in verse 26. For those of you who love this message, you'll hate to see it come to a close. For those of you who are uncomfortable, you're about to say, praise God. Verse 26. But do not fear them. Jesus never said, okay, y'all, now it's going to be tough. I know you dread everything that's coming. Y'all just get off in a corner, huddle around, build a big prayer circle, circle the wagons, because I'm coming. Hold on. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't telling you to lay awake at night and toss and turn and be stressed out and let your blood pressure go up and worry about what's coming on the earth. Jesus said, in the last days, men's hearts will fail them because of fear of what's coming on the earth. But he wasn't talking about his people. He was talking about people who didn't know God. As the people of God, we're on a mission. We've got an assignment here. Do you know what our attitude should be? And I'm not saying my attitude is always this way. For those of you who have ever looked at the news and sat back and say, Oh, Lord, would you just please come on? I can't wait to get out of here. If you've ever done that, trust me, I've done that a thousand times. I understand completely. But can I tell you something? Don't get mad at me. That should not be your attitude or mine. Now, I'm looking forward to Jesus coming. I long to be in heaven with Jesus. But the only reason we should long to be in heaven with Jesus is to see Jesus, not to get out of here. Two different motives there. When we see these things happening on the earth, do you know what Jesus said to do? When you see all these things coming to pass, he didn't say put your head down, dig down, hunker down. That's not what he said. He said, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. If anything, the more we see these things happening on the earth, we ought to become more engaged in the warfare. If anything, our heart ought to be stirred because our time is running shorter. If anything, people that you know that need Jesus, that you say you love, that I say I love, that don't know Jesus, I ought to be more stirred up to share the gospel with them today than I've ever been at any time in my life. If anything, if I know people who are being destroyed for a lack of knowledge and sin that they've allowed in their life, I ought to be standing up and taking a stand today like I've never taken a stand before. Even if it costs me popularity, even if people don't like me, even if I'm called homophobic or Islamophobic or whatever phobic they want to call me, fact is I'm not afraid of any of that mess. I just want to. I, 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 you know, if I'm afraid of anything, I just don't want to fail my master. If there's anything that I don't want to do, I don't want to be found unpleasing to Jesus in the last days. If there's anything I want to be found as pleasing to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and if that means that. Everybody else walks away, so be it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. That needs to be the battle cry of the church of Jesus Christ in our generation. If it's ever been our battle cry, it ought to be our battle cry today. It's time to choose a side, and it's time to take a stand. But don't be afraid. Never be afraid. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power 
and of love and of a sound mind. We'll close with this. Verse 26 said, don't fear them. Why? Because there's nothing covered that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. Otherwise, payday's coming. It may not be today. may not have been yesterday. may not have been tomorrow. But payday's coming. There's nothing hidden that one day is not going to be revealed. Everything's going to be brought to light one day. God's going to make everything right. And you say, well, Brother Lynn, I know he's going to do that one day in the judgment. I get that, and that's fine. But you don't understand. I feel wronged. I, in my own life, there's so many things that are, I just feel like the enemy's stolen this, he's stolen that, and life's taken this from me and that from me, and all these things are wrong. Listen, payday's coming. God's a sovereign God. And whatever the enemy's brought against your life, this, it's not over. You're still breathing. It's not over. You're still here. It's not over. God's not finished yet. The final whistle hadn't blown. The bell hadn't sounded. You're still in this fight. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lay down. Fight. Get engaged. Well, what's the best way to do that? Look at verse 27. Whatever I, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach it or shout it from the housetops. What's the best way to get engaged in this battle? Continually be in the presence of God. Be a man or woman of prayer and intercession. Be a man or woman of the word. Get in the presence of God and listen to what the Holy Spirit says. And what the Holy Spirit tells you in that secret place, shout it from the housetops. The answer to the trouble that this world has is the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the person that is the messenger is you and me. Could it be... And I hear this all the time. I've said it myself. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I could preach more, but I'm going to close here. When we were on the drama team, my wife and I went with our team. We, we did drama in, outside of, in the mountains of eastern Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. And I don't know if it's still there or not. I remember the name of the town. I won't say it here. But we did drama at a Christian community. It was in the foothills of the mountains. It was, a, it was a nice place, nice service. We liked it at the time. They all had nice, beautiful little houses. They had their own church, their own store, had their own medical clinic. They had all their own stuff self-contained right in their little valley there. And they were all Christians. And we did drama for them, for their youth. And they responded, and it was a good service. Man, they were neat people. But the more I've thought about that through the years, I thought how wrong that probably is. You see, they got tired of the world. They got tired of having to hear 
the bad language, and they got tired of having to put up with the bad attitudes, and they got tired of all the things around them. So what they did is they got them a little self-contained community, and they all moved in together so everybody could just be happy. They all thought alike. They all liked the same songs in worship. They liked the same teachers, and they bought the same books. As nice as that sounds, that is not what Jesus called us to do. Now, I'm not saying they didn't go to heaven. You know, I'm just saying as nice as that sounds, that's not what Jesus called us to do. He said, I didn't call or ask, Lord, I didn't ask, Father, for you to take them out of the world. I'm putting them in the world. I just don't want them to be of the world. Jesus is not calling you to step out into some nice little Christian community where everybody's always happy and nobody ever has a bad attitude and everybody always agrees with you and everybody always talks like you want and sings what you want. Listen, that's heaven. When it's time to go to heaven, he'll take us there. Until then, we're supposed to be engaged in the world that we're in. And that means that we are to be salt and light, Jesus said. There's no place that needs light more than where darkness is greatest. Jesus calls us to engage our culture. Just don't let our culture deceive us. Jesus calls us to confront our world and be right in the middle of it. Just don't ever let the ideas and the mindsets and the ways of our world get in to us. Understand that we're at war. Outside of the Ken Burns documentary, Civil War, one of my favorite documentaries is Ken Burns' World War II. It's called The War. And it traces all the battles of World War II with real pictures and real video and conversations with the soldiers that were still living who fought the battles. Now, for a history buff, I could sit and if I had time, watch the whole thing over again. Because these are real Men and women who were involved in a real battle that changed the course of the world. And one particular battle that they talked about was the invasion at D-Day. We've seen movies about it. What turned the tide on Hitler's war machine was when the Allied armies were willing to put their own sons and daughters at risk and go where the enemy was. And invade enemy territory. They knew it cost them something. And it did. It cost a lot. But had those brave men not been willing to do what they did. America would look totally different today. Trust me. We wouldn't be here talking about trying to hold on to our freedoms. You wouldn't have any freedoms to hold on to. It would be a very different world and a very different nation. But that generation understood something. They understood that there was an evil in the world that was worth being confronted. They understood that the battle was worth, if it cost it, dying for. And they were willing to leave the comforts and the convenience of home 
to possibly lay down their life to confront an evil that if they didn't confront it, would one day confront their children and their grandchildren. Now many of those soldiers died on the beaches of Normandy. And it was a slow, hard, fought, hand-to-hand, inch-by-inch battle for days, really. We watch it in a movie and we think, wow, that was awesome. We think it all got done in three hours or two, however long your movie was. Didn't work like that. Real war never is that tidy or convenient. See, most of us would get engaged in spiritual warfare if it could just last from 6.30 to 7 on Sunday nights so that we could get home and watch whatever it is that's on TV. Most of us would get engaged with the battle at work if we weren't afraid that it would cost us our own promotion. Most of us would talk to that family member or that neighbor about Jesus if we weren't a little bit concerned that the next family gathering might be a little uncomfortable. If there was no inconvenience and if it was all neat and tidy, this war, then we'd all be engaged. But war is not ever tidy. And a war is never convenient. And it's never comfortable. And it's never easy. And to be real honest with you, we fought some wars that we probably should have never fought. But there are some wars that are worth fighting. And this battle is worth fighting. Matter of fact, if we don't engage in this battle... You need to understand something. If you don't engage the enemy, the enemy will one day engage your children and grandchildren. The enemy that you don't take down today will one day rise up to confront the next generation. Believe that. I do. So it's vital that we choose a side. As I close today, I know everybody in this room, I chose a side a long time ago. I decided to follow Jesus. Well, then it's time to take a stand. It's time to remember you're at war here. I thought the war was over. Well, the victory's won. But you've got to take a stand to hold your ground and even engage the enemy where he's taken ground in your family in your workplace, in your church, in your neighborhood, even in your own mind sometimes. We talked this morning about strongholds, idols. You can't win the victory to be free. You don't have that ability on your best day. Jesus already won the victory to make you free. But you do, and the Bible says this, have to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and refuse to get tangled up again in a yoke of bondage. Freedom belongs to you, but you have to stand up for it sometimes.
We could say on the national level today, and I've heard a lot of people say it, and I think they're right. There are a lot of people in our nation that are very concerned that the hard-fought freedoms that the generation I just mentioned shed their blood for and died for are quickly being acquiesced on the name of convenience and comfort. And I'm afraid they may be right. But if that's true, it's also true that the hard-fought battles the generations in front of us spiritually fought for your freedom and mine. Prayers that were prayed by generations before you so that you could be totally free and whole. I think many times they're acquiesced on the altar of what's convenient today and what's easy and what feels good and what feels right. And it's a tragedy when hard-fought battles with the blood, sweat, and tears of men and women of God at altars in bedrooms and churches across this land for their children and grandchildren that have you sitting in that chair today. It's the reason you and I are here, whether you realize it or not, are acquiesced today on the altar of convenience because we got too many things to do to engage the enemy in the prayer closet. We got too many things to do and it's too uncomfortable to take a stand. After all, what if somebody doesn't like us anymore? I want to be liked. How can I win people to Jesus if you're not liked? Do you know Jesus was one of the most hated, polarizing men on the face of the planet? And he won the world. It is a false idea that you have to be well liked to make a difference. Matter of fact, most of the people that make a difference in the world are very polarizing people. Some people love them, but just as many people hate them. Because you can't take a stand for anything and ever make everyone happy. If your desire is to make everyone happy, you'll never accomplish anything worthwhile in your life. You'll spend your life in frustration. But if you'll make a quality decision in your heart and then back it up every day by taking a stand that the only person you're interested in making happy is Jesus. And the only opinion that you're concerned about pleasing is His. And that the only one you want to live for and die for is Him. And you'll do it every day. Then you'll make a difference in your world. There will be some people who hate you. And you'll wonder, why do you hate me so much? It's okay. They hated those who went before you too. Matter of fact, Jesus said the servant's not greater than the master. They hated me. They're going to hate you if you're doing what I told you. Jesus said when you see these people hate you... Here's your reaction. Oh, get depressed. No. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what that word means? It means you ought to jump up and twirl around in the air and click your heels together because you have been counted worthy to be something just a little bit like the master you follow. Now, as I close, understand this. If that's true, then the opposite is true. If nobody ever gets upset about any stand you take, and if you never ruffle anybody's feathers anywhere about anything, and if everybody you know loves you all the time, whether they're saved, lost, good, bad, or otherwise, then the chances are you don't have any need to rejoice. You probably need to repent. Because the Bible says... All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you may not be lined up by ISIS and beheaded, 
then again, you never know. And I don't say that lightly, by the way. But you will suffer persecution in some form. But can I tell you something? It's worth it. It's worth it. I've stood and talked to people about Jesus from a pulpit. And then I've stood face to face and eye to eye with people out in the public or in private places and talked to them about Jesus as well. And inevitably, at some point, you're going to face the reason that they're not following Jesus. Somehow, somewhere. And when you do that, you're always going to be left with a decision. Do I go ahead and, and confront this and stay engaged? Tell them the truth? Or was this something more than I expected? And do I back off because I'm afraid to offend them? Or I can tell you, sometimes people aren't ready to receive and they ain't going to like you anymore. Not because you were mean to them. It's because you told them the truth. But sometimes there's a beautiful moment that comes when the confusion and the stronghold that's been blinding their minds breaks. And they recognize what they need to receive and they receive the love of Jesus in that area of their life and they're set free. And can I tell you something? I'd take every one of those moments that somebody don't like me, understand me, or hates me because I confronted them with the truth for every one of those moments that somebody's set free and a stronghold is removed from their lives and their future is changed and their family's changed because of what only one person can do, Jesus, in their life. You're in a war. It's time to choose a side. No retreat. No surrender. The only one we surrender to is Jesus. From there forward, we charge. And if you have any doubt about it, he said, upon this rock, upon the knowledge of who he is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates don't move. People do. And the reason he said gates won't prevail is because we're supposed to be charging them. And when we charge them, they can't stand. That's his promise. Choose a side. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for time in your presence and time in your word. Lord God, I thank you that you chose and that you were willing to leave the comforts of heaven, step into human flesh, experience rejection and betrayal and suffering and pain and depravity. For me, for every one of us. I thank you, God, you were willing to get engaged or to commit. I thank you that you paid the price and you bought our freedom. And now you've called us to stand. Lord, you've called us to do warfare in your name with your armor. And to engage the enemy that confronts us. 
And Father, across this room today, Lord, wherever there's been compromise, wherever there's been accommodation for the sake of convenience, Lord, wherever we've become disengaged, Lord, where we've begun to forget that we're on assignment here, we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that this is not our home. It's just a temporary residence, a place where we're on mission. Lord God, I just pray in the name of Jesus, wherever that is, that you would call us back to you. Lord, just like you said Sunday night in service, you you were calling us back to your presence, to a passion for you. Today, you're calling us to choose a side, to take a stand, no matter what the cost. And Lord, the cost may be very high. Truthfully, for every one of us, the cost is everything. So God, I just pray across this room today that resolutely we would just face where we are. And we would yield to your spirit. Lord, you've won this battle. We could never win it on our own. So you did that. You won it for us. You engaged the enemy and you defeated him. You humiliated him in the cross. You stripped him of his weapons. And all you've called us to do is occupy until you come. To take possession of the gates. To take our weapons of warfare that are not carnal and fleshly but mighty. And engage the enemy wherever we see him. And you promised that you'd be with us. You told us not to be afraid, but to lift our heads on high when we see trouble coming. Because our help is in the Lord, and you're coming too. Father God, I pray across this room today, Lord God, that you would just cause each of us in our hearts that are being faced with either charging or retreating, turning our back and running, to save ourselves or standing up and charging even if it cost us everything. Father God, I pray that we would be those people that would not turn our backs, that would not retreat. But God, we'd be those people who seek a city whose builder and maker is God. And your word says, for those people, you are not ashamed to be called their God, for you have prepared for them just such a city. Father God, I pray that we would understand that that's where home is. And Lord, that we would choose to stand with you in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, if you've never chosen sides in this battle, if you've never chosen to give your heart to Jesus and say, I belong to him, this is your moment, it's your opportunity. You can do that right here, you can do that right now. He paid your price, he shed his blood, to forgive your sin and make you free. All you have to do is say yes to Him. Choose to follow Him. Lay everything else down and follow Him. And He'll empower you by His Spirit to do it if you'll trust Him. If you've never, ever chosen sides, today's the day. I challenge you across this room, if you need to give your heart to Jesus, would you lift your hand? If you've never done that and you want to do that here, you want to do that now, would you lift your hand anywhere in this room? Choose the right side, the only one that wins in the end. Secondly, you're a child of God, but you forgot that you were involved in a war. You know it. You've not been living your life under the orders of your master. You've been sending out your own orders and doing your own thing for your own benefit. 
Tonight, we're going to talk about the other side of this coin. God is a good God. He does want to bless you. He's a wonderful Father. But He's also our commanding officer. He's the captain of the Lord of hosts. And this is a war we're in. And He demands that you take a side. He demands that you choose. If I would have kept reading today, we would have come to a verse where Jesus said, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. I know that's a verse that sounds uncomfortable. That's why I don't get preached very much. But the words are in red. Jesus said it. He absolutely wants you to choose a side and own it. And live it no matter the cost. If it means you've got something going on in your life that you know needs to change, it's worth it. Let it go. If you've got sin going on in your life right now and you know it and you've tried every way you can to justify it, he's saying, choose a side. Let it go. But you don't know. I'm comfortable with it now. Everybody around me is comfortable with it now. It'll cost me everything. No, it won't. It won't cost you the main thing. The main thing's Jesus. Don't forget that. The main thing's His Word. It's worth it. Let it go. Let it go. Choose a side. Take a stand. Maybe you're a Christian and you can't say that you've got some sin going on in your life. You're a pretty good person. You got everything going on. You, you go to church. You read your devotions. You're careful what you watch and what you listen to and what you say. But you have no passion. Not only do you not, are you not engaged in the war around you, you forgot that there's one going on. You don't remember the last time that you passionately prayed. You don't remember the last time you went after the presence of God. You can't remember the last time that you really just took His Word, got in a closet and sought God's Word until His Word changed you. You can't remember the last time that you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit over something in your life that was wrong and you made a choice to lay it down even though it cost you something. If you remember it, it's been so long ago. And that sense of conviction long ago since ceased seeking after you. But I'm telling you today, Jesus is calling you to choose a side. Take a stand. You're a Christian, but this is a war. And lives are hanging in the balance. It's more important than you ever realized. Choose a side. If you know God's speaking to you about that, I don't care how young or old you are. You've just been kind of going along in cruise control. You've not really been engaged. God's calling you. Take a stand. If you know He's speaking to you, that's you. Would you lift your hand anywhere in this room? Anybody else? Just you go ahead, wherever you're at in the room. Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Doesn't matter how long you've been in this church or some other church. You know God's dealing with you today. And you're saying, God, I'm ready. With everything in me, best I know how, I want to take a stand. I choose a side and I choose you. Anybody else, just real quick, just lift your hand right where you are if you know God's speaking to you and you're ready to make that commitment. Right? Let's stand together in this room. Father, for everybody whose hands just went up, Father God, I thank you they've made a choice. Lord, they didn't lift their hand to me because I can't do a thing for them. They lifted their hand to you. 
They're saying, Lord, you've spoken to my heart today. I acknowledge it. There's an area in my life where I need to choose a side and take a stand. Lord, I want to choose you, and I want to stand with you. Now, Lord, they're going to need your help. They can't do one thing on their own. Apart from the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they will fall. But, Lord, with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they will live and be victorious. They'll stand. Your word declares, having done all to stand, stand therefore, having on the whole armor of God. Lord God, I just thank you they're going to stand and they're going to see victory in their lives and the lives of their family. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for a great anointing of the Holy Spirit equipping them for what's ahead. I thank you for joy and anticipation, Lord God, to see victory in their lives and the lives of those around them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you. Go in the grace of God. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon today. Hope to see you back tonight.